introduce myself. I'm Carol Wilson. You probably figured that out, but um, that's who I am. And <laughs> actually, I think I, I know almost everybody. It's nice to be back. It really, a couple of you I know are, are, have come quite recently. Some of you have been here for months. Some of you have been here a few weeks. Just to tell you, you probably hear this sometimes, but it's really remarkable walking into here. You know, I go to lots of retreats, and you know, I'm kind of rather blasé about walking into retreat environments because I do it all the time. It's lovely. I mean, it feels like you guys are really doing it. <laughs> At least you're putting on a good show. No, I'm kidding. It really, it's, 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 it's palpable, you know. It's very uh, inspiring. So thank you all for, for being here. And I know as pleasant a place and as comfortable a place as this has been created to be, there is no escape. And <laughs> a little bit coming out, of, coming out of the interviews today and also an article that a friend sent me yesterday um, kind of brought what I want to talk about. It's, it's really basic Dharma 101, um, but as far as I can see, it never stops being relevant. This article that a friend, uh, a friend sent was a long article in the New York Times. I'll only tell you the name of it to begin with, which is The, Fur- the Futile Pursuit of Happiness, which hopefully we're not going to in the end agree that our pursuit of happiness is futile. But in terms of how we usually, or the way of the world of pursuing happiness, that is futile, useless, leading onward leading to more suffering and more confusion. So that's a bit what I want to talk about. There's a couple of different sutras or discourses of the Buddha Um, I'll just quote from the beginning of one of them, which to me it really sort of speaks to the fact that with our best intentions, we want to live in this world. Not only do we want to be happy, of course, but we also, I'm assuming here, that those of us here would agree with what I'm about to say, that we really want to live in a way that's harmless, in a way that brings about more peace, more connectedness. You know, we don't want to create more suffering and hostility in the world or in ourselves. I could safely say that for people here, right? But even with our best intentions, right? Even we just don't want to create, you know, more conflict in ourselves. Even going around here with your mouths closed and hardly even interacting with people, you know? Still, hostility, aversion, conflict arises in the mind if at least, please God, you don't act it out. But it does arise with our best intentions. This is the Buddha talking. Actually, Saka, the Deva king, came down and was talking with the Buddha. And he asked the Buddha, what are we fettered with? What are we chained with that even though we humans, as well as Devas, we think May we live free from hostility. May we live free from violence, free from rivalry, free from ill will, free from those who are hostile or from being hostile ourselves. Even though we deeply think this, why is it that we keep ending up, you know, living in hostility with violence, with rivalry? with ill will. What is it that fetters us? What is it that chains us? And it's just one of the ways the Buddha outlines things, nothing you haven't heard before. But he begins by saying that we beings are fettered by the bonds of envy and stinginess. You know, envy wanting what others have, and stinginess, trying to hold on to what we have, not wanting to share. And that this is caused by holding tight to preferences, 
by creating in our minds and our hearts what is dear to us and what is not dear to us and then holding tightly to that. And he doesn't stop here, I'll go on, but I find this particular uh, description to me is both very useful and also unsettling. You know, it shakes up the not so comfortable, but we think it's comfortable world or description or way of being that we have. How can we not have preferences? How can we live without preferences? Right away, the mind can start to jump into reaction. Even the Buddha had preferences. Even the Buddha picked how he wanted to live. Can't you just hear how the mind is kind of justifying ourselves somehow? But he says, caused by holding to preferences, creating what is dear and not dear, and holding on to that, which of course is caused by desire, which is fed and increased by thinking about our preferences and by the ensuing papancha proliferation that comes around that. So I want to talk a bit about this holding to preferences, this dear and not dear, and why does that create this ongoing inability to live in a way that brings happiness and peace to ourselves and others, even though that's what we want. I would think, at least in my own experience, that holding on to preferences, of course we have preferences, holding on to what is dear, trying to get rid of what is not dear, likes and dislikes, you could say, really arises from our deep, really deep yearning to be happy. And as you know, the Buddha often said, everyone wants to be happy. We just, <clears throat> he didn't put it quite this way, but we just don't really get how to do it. We're just lost in, in delusion and not seeing clearly. Our holding to our preferences arises from our misguided attempts to find some way to really be happy in this life, to find some way to bring happiness to others. But what it comes down to is that we really don't know what true happiness is. We not only don't know how to go about living in happiness, but we don't really know what it is. And that brings me to this article, The Futile Pursuit of Happiness, which it's really very fascinating. I'll spare you, it's like really long, I'll spare you all of it. But it's an article about um, some very serious scientific research that's been going on the last few years. A series, a group of four professors, one who's um, a professor of psychology at Harvard, one's a psychologist at the University of Virginia, one's an economist at Carnegie Mellon, and one's a psychologist and a Nobel laureate in economics at Princeton. So we're talking serious research, not like some loopy fringe thing. <laughs> and these guys, especially the lead one, Gilbert, started uh, basically looking at what is it that we do to be happy. He's just studying the, the, the question of what it takes to be happy and the decisions we make trying to bring about happiness in our life all very scientific with scientific method and lots of tests and lots of studies. So in, in some series of studies, they made a slew of observations and conclusions that undermine a number of fundamental assumptions. The assumptions that it undermines is namely that we humans understand what we want and are any good at improving our well-being. The studies undermine that assumption says that basically, um, as he termed these studies, it is to wonder if everything you have ever thought about life choices and about happiness has been at the least somewhat naive and at worst greatly mistaken. Now this is scientific studies, and they're basically going on to say that we base our decisions on what will make us happy 
on how we think we'll feel when a certain event happens, when we get a certain thing. And he goes on to see that basically we have no clue. We, we completely underestimate and overestimate how happy something will make us and how unhappy something will make us. You know? And then we make our life decisions based on these assumptions, which turn out often, usually, to be not accurate at all. And I'll, I'll, I'll read you another quotation in a minute, but he said, an example is, most people, if given the choice, which would you rather have, you know, a broken leg or a trick knee? And people think a broken leg's much more suffering. I'd rather have a trick knee. But over time, it turns out that a trick knee, a bad knee, although the immediate suffering in each moment is less, the amount of suffering over time is much, much more than a one-time intense experience like a broken leg. And so he says, in general, we overestimate both how happy having something pleasant will make us and how long it will last. It doesn't make us as happy as we think, and it doesn't last very long. This isn't news to us, right? And the same for, th- for difficult things. We overestimate how horrible something will be and how much it's going to ruin our life. And it also isn't nearly as intense as we imagine, and it doesn't last as long as we imagine. Sure, it still hurts. It's still sad. But it doesn't have the effect we think. And this is what we base our life choices on. So that's just a real short little beginning of what they're talking about. And essentially, I think that's what the Buddha's talking about. We base our sense of preference of liking and disliking, and dear and not dear, on what makes us feel good in the moment, generally, what's pleasant, and what we think is going to make us feel bad, or it does make us feel bad, or even getting in the neighborhood of it makes us feel bad, and we run in the other direction. And we, we keep cycling our life like this. And I know I've, I've said this often, but I keep finding it in my practice on more and more subtle levels. And talking to people today, I can see how on real subtle levels it keeps coming in, that somehow this um, misunderstanding of what the happiness and peace the Buddha is talking about is, of what the happiness that's really available to us right now is, our misunderstanding of that based on our not seeing ourselves and the nature of life clearly, keeps us looking in practice, in life, ultimately for things to finally get okay. You know? And it gets more and more subtle. But it's so easy that it creeps in that somehow what we're practicing for, what we're living for, or the unspoken idea of enlightenment, somehow carries the flavor of pleasantness, of happiness in the terms of we have what we like and what we don't like goes away, or of somehow finally being in control and not being the so-called victim of all these unexpected, unpleasant, really crazy things that happen. Or at least, at least, even if a lot of unpleasant stuff happens, we're going to really understand it all. And so in that way, we're in control. That one really, I still fall into that one, but that one really for a long time. It's okay, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, but I'm going to really understand what's going on a sense of control, a sense of knowing, a sense of having. And to really turn around and look at what was the Buddha talking about when he says, I teach, you know, the suffering and the end of suffering, the enlightened one, the peaceful one. He says he does not suffer. And it took me years to really kind of consciously look at his life after he was enlightened and think, oh, his life actually doesn't sound like it was any more pleasant 
in the experiencing of it than most of our lives, you know? He didn't particularly have good health. He had backaches, he had headaches, as you know, he had all kinds of um, sorrows and aggravations and the loss of people close to him, both family and his chief disciples. He spent 45 years of his life in tireless service to other beings. His sangha of monks was split. One of his cousins tried to kill him. His clansmen on his mother's and father's side went to war over water rights and killed a lot of each other, and he had to go and mediate. He, he chose a very simple life, so he certainly didn't have much physical comfort. And yet, and yet, he made it very clear to us that he no longer suffered. And so when I, I, I need in myself to keep coming back and reminding myself, oh, having no preferences. You can look at it in the other way and say, well, of course he had preferences. He also had preferences, didn't he? He chose the Buddha to live as a monk. He chose to live a renunciate wandering life. He's always talking about, as Marcia mentioned in her, in her talk last week, he's always saying, choose wisely the people that you spend time with. And he's not saying, do whatever you want, it doesn't make any difference, you know. He laid out a very strict, very comprehensive path of how to live. So having no preferences doesn't mean, ah, what the hell, you know. I don't know the difference, liking, disliking, pleasant, unpleasant, who knows. Not that at all. It means paying very careful attention, being fully present, for all of it, the whole show. And within the field of experiencing really difficult life stuff as the Buddha did, within the field of choosing to live as a renunciate, having no preferences means not being attached to having it any particular way. So that when there was suffering going on in his life, how is the Buddha different from us in that way? I mean, I can only project, right? I'm certainly not speaking from my own personal experience. I don't know what the Buddha's mind was like. But it seems to me that the difference based on his talking about not clinging to preferences would be that he could flow with, be with, wide awake in the midst of all of it. The difficulty, the beauty, the frustration, the exhaustion, the uncomfortness of the way he lived, because he could just be in harmony with whatever it is that's arising. Not holding to preferences means ultimately in this moment, whatever's arising is arising, and I don't need to make it different. I can't anyway. You can't change this moment, can you? I know we try. We spend a lot of our practice, really a lot, trying to change this moment. And it's such a ridiculous and impossible thing to even try to do because the moment's already over before we've even able to notice what it is. And then we get engaged in throwing it into the future and trying to change it, but it's, it's long gone. That's just a little sign. But not, not clinging to preferences, the Buddha didn't awaken into some other life somewhere else. But he lived a very engaged, connected, awakened life in this world, as it is. And as he often said, without suffering. And so the suffering isn't about being able to change the external world. It's not about being able to have a better body. It's not about being able to manipulate and control our friends or the people that we're teaching. But liberation is really awakening fully into this moment without clinging to any preference whatsoever. And I feel our whole practice is around allowing us to see and understand our moment-to-moment experience so accurately so clearly 
that are um, habitual or unconscious almost need to keep trying to manipulate and control and get it how we like it and avoid what scares us. That that drops away not because it should, you know, it should get rid of this so I can finally be happy, but it doesn't make sense anymore. When we really experience with satipanya, with mindfulness wisdom at a moment of sense contact, when we experience in that moment things just as they are, then the need, even just for a moment, the need for our um, ongoing construction of sense of self and other, of trying to explain and assess and compare and give meaning to every sense contact that comes, you know, in a way of trying to figure things out and control the world, that just falls away. The need to grasp at pleasant, the need to push away the unpleasant, the tendency to just space out and get diluted and ignore if something isn't sufficiently intense to pull us in and say, hey, pay attention. That drops away. We don't have to think about, I should be like this. It happens naturally, spontaneously, out of clear seeing. The Buddha talked about cultivating unshakable unshakable deliverance of mind. That phrase really inspires me. Because I feel that all of us here, certainly everyone I've talked to at some point or other, which is almost everyone here, we all know the taste of freedom of mind. Because really it's moment to moment. It's not like I have to experience either no freedom of mind at all or total, absolute arhantship and It's just nothing in between. We all know a moment of freedom of mind where there's just being fully present, knowing a sight, a sound, a taste, a smell, and the knowing of it. And there's no adding of story onto it. There's no referencing it back to me. There's no clinging or pushing away. There's no nothing. It's just this. There's no mind going, oh, now I'm experiencing a moment of freedom of mind. It's just this. It's so natural. It's so simple. In that moment, the need to cling, to make dear or not dear, to manipulate, just doesn't arise, does it? doesn't make any sense. You don't even think about it. And it's so normal and natural that we often don't even notice it. Just like, oh yeah. This is going on fine, fine, fine. But then this thing happened, and no, 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 no. Now I've got to fix it. Now, you know, and it's as if all that other stuff doesn't matter because we get so caught, so entranced with our reactions to particular experience. And this, of course, is where the Buddha was so um, brilliant and so clear in his precision in the way of talking about it. I mean, of course, here we have to just mention the Four Noble Truths, which I'm not going to go into, but when the Buddha tried to teach us just what we need to free our hearts and mind, not to know everything he knew, you know, but just to free us from our propensity to create suffering where it's unnecessary, And the first thing he thought he needed to tell us was these facts of life. The first one being, of course, dukkha. The fact that difficult, unpleasant things happen. That everything we experience is impermanent, is fleeting. And not just that it's going to go away at some point, but that it's even now in this moment dissolving and changing. That there's nothing reliable we can hold to. That's dukkha. That the cause, though, of our anguish, of our ongoing suffering in our life, is not the dukkha itself, but the habituated reactions, responses of our mind and heart to -to moment-to-moment experience. The clinging 
and the aversion to the fact that things are constantly changing, unreliable, and sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant. The third, that when we really, even just for a moment, clearly recognize things as they are, there is both momentary and at some point altogether a real liberation of heart and mind, a cessation of the clinging, a cessation of the aversion, a cessation of this creation of unnecessary anguish and suffering. And that can be touched by us here and now in any moment, no matter what the particular experience is. And our practice here is one aspect of the fourth truth or the path that the Buddha laid out of purification of heart, of mind, of cultivation, of clear seeing, of insight, of a heart and mind that in a moment is free of clinging and that allows us to see clearly. And then that further frees the heart and mind from the tendency to cling. And I mention these not as an intellectual concept, or, oh yeah, the Four Noble Truths, yada, yada, but to really take it as a call to inquire into your own experience moment by moment. I was really struck today in, in talking with people. I talked to 10 or 11 people, and in very different ways. You know, each person is in his or her own practice and is going on its own trajectory, which is appropriate for that person, and there's nothing to compare with somebody else. But I was struck by, in various ways, how this theme of dukkha, of difficulty, of unpleasantness, and of our reactions to it, continues to be uh, a significant thread through all levels, all aspects of our practice. And not a thread like a mistake, right? You think, oh yeah, even I'm doing you know, subtle practice and I still have dukkha, you know, what's wrong? That's exactly why it's a theme. Nothing's wrong. The first truth is dukkha happens. If you think something's wrong because there's something unpleasant or difficult in your practice, well, as, as, we, were, as we were teaching Dhamma Ruan, the Sri Lankan uh, guy, some uh, American slang, he, he's got this one out. Duh! He said this the other day. Duh! Oh, what's wrong? Dukkha's coming up. <laughs> Nothing's wrong. It's part of life in this body on this planet. The difficulty is that reaction, what's wrong? It's so uh, instinctive to us to somehow flinch back. And on all the levels that we experience the unsatisfactoriness and suffering of this world on retreat, and all the levels, and all different levels, and talking to people today, the, the macro level, you could say, of, of the vastness and the unbearableness of how much suffering and cruelty and pain there is in this world. To start thinking about it is unbearable, you know? To say, well, I'm just thinking, that's a thought arising now, the mind comes in and goes, well, you selfish, you know, that's just being in, and then you want to get lost in it again. The sort of mid-level of... um, something coming up in our practice, in our personality pattern, in our our deep emotional, physical pain body, whether it's uh, deep feelings of worthlessness or old traumatic memories or some um, deep loneliness or anger, but not, you know, just passing through, but the times when it comes up on retreat viscerally in your cells and your practice, the mind says, why can't I just you know, be back with lifting, moving, placing like it was yesterday. What's going wrong now? I've got to be with these waves of unpleasant emotion. I blew it, you know? It's like, no, what's happening? What's happening now? No holding to preferences, you know? 
that's another aspect of dukkha. And then on, on seemingly very subtle levels, where there's no big thing going on, but in a, just in a moment where the steadiness of awareness disconnects, so to speak, from present moment experience. Now you're just there, 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 and it just disconnects. And in that can come aversion or a kind of a subtle restlessness, a subtle dissatisfaction, you know. Really, the, the, the subtle element of samsaric unreliability. And you connect and it's gone again. When it's gone, it's important to notice it's really gone. Because another thing we do is we hate the dukkha, and then when the unpleasantness is gone, we carry it around with us, you know? Like one of my teachers used to say, it's like dragging a corpse around with you, you know? This was there when I wasn't, wasn't paying attention, and as soon as I don't pay attention, it's going to come back, and then, you know, what's happening now? So the, the thread of how our heart and mind relates to both unpleasant and pleasant, but particularly the dukkha, because it's so ingrained to flinch away, to turn away, to think something else should be happening. I mean, it's really rare, really rare, when things have been going the way you like them, which is, oh, good practice, and suddenly it changes and it gets really difficult in whatever way, gross, subtle, it doesn't matter. It's really rare for the mind to just not have any quiver of preference, not have any quiver of what did I do wrong and how can I get it back? You know? And of course, everything we say, any instructions that are given, always tend in the direction of what seems like good practice. So, oh yeah, and by the way, there'll be fear and there'll be aversion and you'll get caught in the butt when it's really going subtle. It's just no everything goes away really quickly and then we think, yeah, that's what I'm heading towards. A world of no suffering, things just the way I want them. But the second truth, again, it's not that the difficult stuff happens or that things change or that the way we think it should be isn't the way it is. I mean, really, how often in your life is the way you think it should be? How often does that actually happen? at the same time that you still think it's the way it should be. You know, not very often and it doesn't last very long. Then finally it gets to the way you thought it should be three years ago, but now you know it shouldn't be that way anymore. It should be some other way. It's hopeless. It is, that is the futile pursuit of happiness. That's what they're talking about. But we can only recognize the truth of this of the fact that the freedom, the peace, the happiness the Buddha is talking about is completely not dependent on having any particular experience be present or absent. That it's absolutely about the relationship, about the the clear seeing and the open-heartedness that lets this mind and body just be completely open, awake, non-judging, non-resistant, non-clinging, in the midst of whatever experience arises. That's not something we can arrive at experientially by thinking about it, or by listening to it, by reading about it. All of that can help us begin to look, but we only recognize the truth of this for ourselves when we, even for a moment or so, stop our habit of running from the unpleasant and towards the pleasant. When we stop our habit of you know, just averting our attention and pretending to be here in this unpleasant thing, but really waiting for it to go away and for practice to start up again and get better. And I'm talking about practice, but I mean, this is the way we live our lives, you know. When we are able to be as open and present in the midst of the beautiful, in the midst of the boring, 
unbearably boring in the midst of the painful. And this arises by our simple willingness to look, to just stop our habit of running and turn around and look and see what's actually going on. And this, of course, as you know, is the whole thrust, the whole point of mindfulness and samadhi, the whole point of our practice, to give us the tools of how to look, how to stop and look, and also to help us recognize what's actually happening. Because as you know, we're so entranced by our reactions to present moment experience, liking the pleasant, disliking the unpleasant, ignoring the neutral, and then building, I don't know if you've noticed this, I hope you have, building incredible stories about ourselves around any stupid little pleasant or unpleasant or neutral sense contact. It's really quite astounding, the creativity and fertility of the mind, of thought process, of papancha, to be able to create a whole world. And if you're in worthlessness, just you know, hearing a sound and having a moment of aversion can lead you in no time at all to a complete assessment of what a rotten, negative, hostile person you are, totally believed, no clue in awareness of seeing that just what happened was hearing and the knowing of it, unpleasantness and the knowing of it. Well, we weren't aware of the knowing of it, were we? We were just aware of, boom, down the road. Pleasantness, the same thing. And we're so entranced by these reactions and the stories we tell ourselves about them and what this means about me and what this means about practice and this unpleasant feeling in the breath means X, Y, and Z about my practice and so I have to do this and change this and make that happen so that my practice can get back on an even keel heading in the direction of Nibbana, which God knows isn't here and can't ever be in the direction as long as my breath has this heavy tightness in it. You know, So let's fix that and then Nibbana's around the corner. And we believe this crap. Over and over and over, sense contact after sense contact after sense contact, and we wonder why we're so exhausted, why we're so lost, why practice is so hard, why life is so hard. We just, we really don't have a clue. We don't even know what's really happening. And this is, this is from that article again. It said, Gilbert, the, the main man who's doing this investigation, says, uh, says, we don't even know what makes us happy. And if it's difficult to figure out what makes us happy in this moment, how can we predict what will make us happy in the future? But how much of our practice, how much of our life is about trying to figure out what's going to make us happy or free or liberated? And how often is liberation just another way of saying happy, getting what I want? So it's learning to see how we get so involved in our interpretations, our assessments of moment-to-moment simple experience, how so often the biggest enticement, the most seductive entrancement of all, and and watch this in your practice, maybe I'm the only one, that most of those assessments and interpretations somehow make every sense experience come back to revolving around me. You know, me, 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 what it means about me, what my reaction to it means about me, what it's going to feel like for me in the future, how it's always been like this for me in the past. You know, we're just the center of everything. The center of the whole world. Every sense experience is just happening to show us something about ourselves. And because we get so enticed, it's hard to just see clearly enough to, oh, that's just hearing and the knowing of it. That's just smelling and smelling consciousness. 
it's not quite juicy enough. If it's smelling and smelling consciousness, and yeah, that really makes me hungry, then I can really get down on myself for being hungry because I had enough to eat and I'm on eight precepts and I shouldn't be hungry. And then I can get into a whole thing about I can't even practice renunciation. That is much more suffering, but in a very weird way, we find it more satisfying because we're not looking carefully enough, you know? And I think we don't look carefully enough, partly because we need some concentration and some mindfulness, and partly because of this ingrained, instinctive pulling away from dukkha, from unpleasant, from suffering. Because looking carefully, the part that's so hard The reason I think dukkha runs as a thread through all of our practice is that to really open, to see things as they are, means finding that that vision, the courage, you know, even the, the interest, the resolution to stay here with as calm a mind and heart as possible in the midst of when it's difficult, as well as in the midst of when it's beautiful. And it's hard at first because we don't know any other way. The Buddha said, I can't find it. If I can't find it, I know it by heart. Oh, here it is. When he was talking about the our, our habit, he says, an untaught worldling, O oh monks, does not know of any other escape from painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. So that's basic. That's, I find, very profound, actually. The basic untaught person not exposed to the Dharma, the only escape they know of unpleasant experience from painful feelings is the enjoyment of sense happiness. So then in that person it becomes the underlying tendency, that subtle bias habit of mind to lust after sense pleasure. And a lust for pleasant feelings comes to underlie his mind. And that's where we spend so much of our life, in an underlying subtle tendency to lust for pleasant feelings. When we turn around then and look at the essence of a pleasant feeling when it's here, it's like so nothing, isn't it? Mostly in the world we never even hear about looking at pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feelings. And then so mostly, as the Buddha is saying, we spend our lives trying to avoid the unpleasant ones and inculcating this lust for the pleasant and the fear of the unpleasant. Just feelings. So when we start to and continue here to have the, the steadiness of mindfulness, but also the resolution and the courage to just kind of stop running and turn around and really bring awareness to a pleasant feeling, to an unpleasant feeling, to a neutral feeling, should you ever notice one. And what is it, a pleasant feeling? It's like, it's nothing. It's so short. It's so amazing that we spend our life in, you know, driven pursuit of more of these. I remember reading Ajahn Buddha Dasa where he says, you know, look at your life and see how he says, in his opinion, 90% of all the decisions you've ever made have been in pursuit of pleasant feeling. And when you really look at pleasant feeling, it's just so short. It's so ephemeral, you know? It just comes and goes like a wave. But when we stop and really look at this, the first moments of seeing it, there might be a moment of ease, but somehow it's not like, oh, great, thank God, now I'm done with that. You know, let's move on. There's some way it shakes up our world. 
because we're basing our life. We're basing our understanding of happiness. We're basing our explanations of who we are and what's valuable so much when we don't pay attention on this pursuit of pleasant and avoidance of unpleasant, really, you know, unconsciously. And it t- to turn around and just open to, okay, I can just be here with this fearful, unpleasant thing. It's hard sometimes because it really means finding the stability and the greatness of heart to be when present when all the suffering of the world is flashing before our eyes or when really strong, painful, grief-stricken memories are coming up and we're experiencing it with the intensity we felt it with when we were six months old. Or even the really subtle, seemingly subtle suffering of just that uh, not fitting discontent. Sometimes that's the worst of all because you can't even... You can't even have the satisfaction in your mind of saying, yeah, that's really wrong. There's something horrible. It's just like, ah, where to go to get away from this? And the untaught worldling, as the Buddha is talking about, doesn't know any other way. We're so fortunate that we have a path, that we have a refuge. Because without that, there is nowhere else to go. This is what this, this man Gilbert's saying at the end. I and mean, he's light about it. And he's saying from, from all his, um, his um, studying, he really knows intellectually that what he thinks is going to make him happy isn't going to deliver in any way the way he thinks it can. But he's laughing as he says it. He said, but, he said, I, I really should have learned more than I have. For instance, I'm getting married in the spring because this woman is going to make me happy forever, and I know it. <laughs> and he really laughs, you know, and uh, you know, he can laugh at it. It's good, you know, and he says, uh, he finds it funny, not because it's untrue, but because nothing could be more true. That is really how he feels, you know. <laughs> She's going to make me happy forever, and I know it. <laughs> and so he said, he said, I don't think I want to give up all these motivations, so uh, something about the belief that there's the good and there's the bad and that this is a contest to try to get one and avoid the other. I don't think I want to learn too much from my research in that sense. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he's been doing this for years. This isn't like a one-off test he's been doing. He sounds like actually it's made him really very honest in looking at himself, but without, without a sense of of the peace of the Buddha, of a path and a refuge in awareness, without a sense that real happiness expands beyond and doesn't depend on nama rupa, on sense experience, on mental experience at all. Without that, when we're just caught in the world of sense pleasures and experience, there's nowhere else to go for happiness. Of course people don't want to stop and turn around and look and see that that all just is vanishing the moment you touch it. Because the mind thinks, how can I bear that? And if there's nothing, if there was no other happiness, how could we bear it? And why I say it takes courage in talking to all of you and seeing it in myself. It's easier for me to see courage in others than in myself, of course, but... It takes enormous courage because it's not like we just get to look once and go, oh yeah, that's right, pleasant feeling vanishes, unpleasant feeling vanishes, so no problem. I can be with this. I can just tune into the refuge in awareness and no problem. No. You know, it takes us at times into really deep experiences of grief, of fear, of, you know, all the, the deep... Uh, and strongly habituated defenses of the mind against having to feel certain depths of suffering, mental, physical, emotional, because we think we'll die, because we'll think there's nothing else there. If I feel this, how can I keep going? And of course, you all know, you've all experienced, but we have to keep learning it more and more, that the actual opening to the suffering in the particular moment is the way into that release, that peace, 
that refuge in awareness, because awareness is unaffected, unbothered by whether it's a wonderful, incredible experience, by whether it's painful, by whether it's mundane. When we can take refuge in the knowing, in the awareness, it allows anything, whatever sense experience is arising, internal, external, mental or physical, whatever one is arising, it allows that in that moment to be a gateway to liberation, a gateway to peace, a gateway to waking up, when we can just notice what's arising and the awareness of it. When we become more interested in the awareness rather than assessing and trying to take refuge in the experience. And how often are we trying to take refuge in the experience? Oh, finally, that horrible thing stopped and I can just relax into this peaceful breath. And ever so subtly, ah, yeah, we're taking refuge, you know. We think, now I've found the peace. But it's not, you know. We're still ever so subtly holding on to experience. But we don't have to flee from pleasant either. Ah, yes, now there's calm and there's the knowing of it. Now, out of nowhere comes this surge of energy and the mind's talking a mile a minute and what's going on and then and then I have to figure it out. No, I don't. There's just the mind going a mile a minute and the knowing of it. We don't need to refer it back to me and make up an assessment of what it means or an evaluation. Just in that moment, what's happening and the knowing of it. But it takes a great deal of courage because this real letting go of the clinging, of the trying to use experience for refuge, for safety, for something comfortable, for something familiar, the real liberation from clinging of heart and mind, it comes about when we understand, not intellectually, but in ourselves, when we've seen so clearly, so thoroughly, the ephemeral, unreliable nature of the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, of any sense experience, of the fact that there's just sense experience and contact and the knowing of it and nothing else there. When we really get that more and more and more, then quite naturally, the tendency to clinging, the tendency to aversion, the holding to preferences doesn't arise, falls away. But this takes uh, a, a willingness, an ability, the courage to let down our defenses against the fearsomeness and the unreliability of the world. This is the way Pema Chodron describes it. When we protect ourselves so we won't feel pain, that protection becomes like armor, like armor that imprisons the softness of the heart. We do everything we can think of not to feel anything threatening. And I actually think, I know for me, a lot of my early years of practice was about that. To find, somehow find a way in practice not to feel anything threatening. We try to prolong feeling good about ourselves. Looking at color pictures in magazines of people having fun on the beach. Many of us wish that life could be that good. When we breathe in pain, somehow it penetrates that armor. The way we guard ourselves is being softened up. This heavy, rusty, creaking armor begins to seem not so solid after all. With the in-breath, the armor begins to fall apart, and we find we can breathe deeply and relax. Kindness and a tenderness begin to emerge. We don't have to tense up as if our whole life were being spent in the dentist's chair. I can quite relate to that at times, that sense of just keeping the suffering a little bit at bay. And this tensing up, psychically tensing up, 
it takes a huge amount of energy, a psychic and even physical energy. We don't even know we're walking around so exhausted. There's so much energy available. People wonder why sometimes in concentration and mindfulness as your practice deepens, there's so much energy that can be available. Maybe not this time of night. It's not steady state, but it does come. It's because the armor, that walking around tensed up like we're in the dentist chair, starts to dissolve. And the energy is available for this simplicity of total presence of pure seeing, of pure being, of simply allowing the mystery of life to present itself without having to know ahead of time or assess or refer it back or somehow control or you know, be ready for it before it happens. When we can just open fully into the mystery of this next moment, of this moment, without any reference point at all. Not referencing it to good practice, not referencing it to what happened yesterday or what I think should happen or what this might mean, not referencing it even back to a sense of self, not making any assessment whatsoever, but just total open presence with sati and samadhi, with concentration, just the unification of mind in that moment, and mindfulness, that's really taking refuge in awareness. And in that moment, just for that moment, we're getting an inkling, we're getting a doorway into the peace of the Buddha, into the peace that's accessible to us all the time that we're so fortunate to even have, have a path laid out for us and a sense that this is true and possible and available. It gives us the courage and the faith to not cling so desperately to our search for fulfillment and sense of self in pleasant feeling. Our desperate fear of the unpleasant as a sign that we're failing as a sign that something is inherently and desperately wrong with us or the world. We are as we are. The world is as it is. And actually, when we give up needing to understand how that is, much less explaining it to ourselves, and we give up needing to protect ourselves against how it is, but just have this this trust, this willingness to just be here totally for this arising moment, no more, no less. Then we begin to really touch the peace of the Buddha, to understand what he means when he says, you know, the doors of the deathless are open for those who see, for those who hear, now, in this moment. And it doesn't mean we're fleeing from the world of the senses. It doesn't mean we want to hate sense pleasure, you know, or say, yes, let's have some more suffering because that's my way to freedom. It doesn't mean we're trying to surmount living in a mind and body. It just means understanding more accurately where the chains are. I just want to end by reading two things about this. One from the Buddha, one from a kind of New Age guy. So Eckhart Tolle, he's the New Age guy. He's saying, it's not saying that we should no longer appreciate pleasant or beautiful things or conditions. Of course we do. But to seek something through these beautiful conditions that they cannot give, an identity, a sense of permanency, and fulfillment, this is a recipe for frustration and suffering and from the Buddha. The I is not the fetter of forms. Forms are not the fetter of the I. In other words, the I isn't the problem, forms aren't the problem. But whatever desire and passion arise in dependence on the two of them, 
on the eye, forms, and contact. Whatever desire or passion, aversion arises on dependence of that contact, this is the fetter. If the sense door or the sense object, the eye or the form, were the fetter, if those things were inherently what was keeping us in suffering, then the Buddha said this holy life for the ending of dukkha would not be proclaimed. In other words, if the eye and forms was the problem, there's nothing you could do about it, right? So the holy life would not be proclaimed. There is an eye in the Blessed One. The Blessed One sees forms with the eye. Yet no desire or passion is in the Blessed One. So the Blessed One is well released in mind. I really like that. We don't want to hate the eye. We don't need to get rid of forms. We don't have to run from contact. There is an eye in the Blessed One. He sees forms with the eye. But no passion or desire arises, and he is well released in mind. Just opening to the mystery of whatever this next moment brings, without needing to run from it, hold on to it, make up a story about it. Just there is the door to the deathless. So let's just sit quietly for a moment.